Welcome back to another episode of the Major Journey Podcast. On this week's episode, we have a master grower from, who from 2013 to 2016 directed cultivation for Tweed, Canada's largest licensed producer of legal cannabis and the flagship subsidiary of Canopy Growth Corporation. As one of the company's first employees, he was crucial to Tweed's early success, designing the production facility, selecting the genetics, and hiring and training staff to produce 70,000 plants and process six tons of dry cannabis annually. His work at Tweed has been featured in Vice, The New York Times, Bloomberg News, and a national public radio. Before entering the cannabis industry, he spent 15 years as a commercial greenhouse grower of ornamental and edible crops, growing up to 600,000 plants annually. Today, he provides startup advice to groups launching new cannabis cultivation projects. He frequently speaks about cultivation startups and is a regular contributor to Marijuana Venture, Cannabis Business Times, and Cannabis Science and Technology. He's a member of both the Cannabis National Cannabis Industry Association and the National Association of Cannabis Businesses, where he helped craft the organization's nationwide standards for cannabis cultivation. He is also a sitting board member of the Association of Colombian Cannabis Breeders and Seed Exporters. And last but not least, he recently published a book titled From Seed to Success, How to Launch a Great Cannabis Cultivation Business in Record Time. Without further ado... Ryan Douglas, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Hey, likewise. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, so, Ryan, given that the legal cannabis industry hasn't been around for too long, you have a really impressive track record. And I'd love it if you could share with us what kind of led you to working in the space and ultimately transforming yourself into becoming a master grower with one of the largest cannabis companies in the world. I mean, I'm sure, you know, that wasn't just like an overnight, you know, uh, jackpot, so to say. I'm sure there was, there was a journey and a story behind that. Yeah, definitely. It's been quite a ride. Uh, actually, my background in, in training is in traditional horticulture. So even before touching cannabis on a commercial scale, uh, I was growing uh, flowers and vegetables and herbs um, in greenhouses across the U.S., and uh, as uh, cannabis slowly became decriminalized or legalized in different states, I became interested in really transitioning to a different crop. So the work was the same, but the crop was, was new and interesting and different. So really looking back, um, you know, a decade and a half of experience growing traditional horticultural crops was the best kind of training or foundation I could have asked for to prepare me for an industry in commercial cannabis production. That's so cool. And so you you took that knowledge, you rolled it over into cannabis. And now what you've done with all of your 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 experiences, your your all the innovations that you kind of brought to the table to cannabis, you've kind of packaged that all up into your new book, From Seed to Success, How to Launch a Great Cannabis Cultivation Business in Record Time. Can you share with us what inspired you to write this book? And I have a couple other questions for you. I I went through the book. Uh, prior to the show, and it is jam-packed with value. But before we get into that, I'd love to know what kind of inspired you to write this book and sort of create a roadmap for a lot of folks who want to get into the cultivation side of this industry. Yeah, definitely. So when I left Canopy Growth Corporation, I knew that a lot of the experiences and lessons that I learned 
would be valuable to companies that were in exactly the same position we were in 2013 when we started. So I decided to go out on my own as an independent consultant with the goal of helping um, companies that are new um, to cannabis in newly regulated environments to rapidly launch production and come to market quickly. So over the last four or five years consulting, what I noticed is that when potential clients call me to come visit their production site to look at a problem, it's very seldom, you know, when I start the process of, of troubleshooting and working backwards to determine what the, what the problem is, it was very seldom a technical issue like the wrong kind of fertilizer or the wrong kind of lights or the wrong kind of pruning practice. You know, nine out of 10 times, it actually traced back to mistakes that were made early on in the planning phase of the business that now are manifesting themselves in the form of crop problems. And so what I wanted to do with this book was essentially provide a guidebook for people from any industry that are interested in entering cannabis with the goal of helping them to avoid the typical startup mistakes that I saw over and over and over again with the clients that I work with. That's really interesting because we've seen a lot of the Canadian LPs um, and even a, a handful of, of companies based in the US invest tr what I call treasure chest amounts of money into expanding cultivation capacity. Um, and it almost seemed like that was kind of the end all be all. And that was going to be the metric that, you know, kind of distinguished one company from another. And that was going to be what determined their success. But it, it turns out or it kind of looks like that was not necessarily the end all be all. Um, and so with that said, can you share with us what you've seen along the way that a lot of cultivators do wrong that others who are just getting started in this vertical can potentially avoid. Uh, you, you alluded to more so, you know, thinking of the, the business plan first, and it's not necessarily always about the, the lights or the fertilizer that you're using, but kind of how maybe this kind of alludes to more of the SOPs or kind of how you structure the grow and the cultivation. So um, what are some things that, that new cultivators should, should keep an eye out and potentially avoid to, um, to kind of mitigate their risk of just throwing, more money than necessary at the wall. Yeah, so there's uh, probably two or three um, top points that I see repeated commonly with most uh, clients and potential clients. And so the first one is the hiring of an inexperienced grower or the mm. wrong kind of grower. So a lot of, a lot of startups, they'll hire for cannabis knowledge, but not necessarily for plant production experience. And so the difference is if you hire someone that knows a lot about cannabis or has grown a few plants at home, you get someone that knows a lot about varieties, uh, maybe about different cultivation techniques, but what they don't know about, <clears throat> what they typically don't have experience with is commercial facility management or people management or production management skills. And so what happens is that the company learns at the same rate as the grower that they hired. And so typically the learning curve is really long and pretty expensive and the company foots the bill. But unfortunately, a lot of startups, uh, you know, individuals that are um, successful in other industries that come to cannabis, they really don't, for some reason, don't place very much importance on the head grower. So they think they can, you know, it's almost like an afterthought. They raise 10 million bucks, they build the facility and then, oh yeah, we need a grower. So they hire someone that's inexperienced, that doesn't cost too much, but it's not seen as a risk if upper management can kind of keep a hand on things and get involved, but that kind of snowballs into an avalanche of micromanagement. So to 
avoid all of this, I recommend clients really hire the best grower they can afford and not necessarily someone from the cannabis industry. So just because I have a decade and a half of experience in traditional horticulture, I often point people to that field. So instead of hiring someone with a lot of cannabis knowledge, but not much commercial uh, production experience, why not hire someone that has been running a commercial greenhouse for 10 or 12 years and then simply teach them the specifics of, of cannabis cultivation? So in my experience, it's much easier to teach a commercial cultivator of flowers how to grow cannabis than it is to teach a home grower how to become a commercial cultivator of anything. Wow. I, ne I never really thought of it that way, but that makes so much sense. And in, in the book, Ryan, you, talk, you, you touch on future-proofing cannabis businesses. Um, how, what are some of the things that, that you recommend companies and, and cannabis business leaders sort of think about before they act officially hit the ground running, how to prepare for that, for that quote unquote, you know, future proofing step of their business so that they don't fall behind the curve and run into problems like these. What are some of the preliminary things that you kind of recommend for folks to think about and consider, um, and kind of strategize on before they, they hit the ground running with their new cultivation? Yeah, so that's a, it's a topic we can attack from a couple a couple of different angles. One is the way that we produce what it is we're growing. So, as responsible business owners and as commercial cultivators, we need to anticipate that we're going to come under increased pressure in the future to really minimize our carbon footprint. So, on the one hand, you know it's great that more and more states and more and more countries are legalizing commercial cannabis cultivation, but we don't want our legacy as an industry to be that we created something that is just a massive consumer of electricity. So one way that uh, companies can future-proof their business is to really anticipate more strict regulations regarding electrical consumption and water consumption in the future. So one way we can do that is to actually move from indoor production to greenhouse production. So these indoor production facilities are great because they give the grower 100% control over the environment, right? They can control everything from light intensity to carbon dioxide, uh, temperature, humidity, airflow, everything. And as a result, it produces really nice flour. But growing indoors is the most expensive way to start and it has the highest operational expense of any way of growing. And it consumes a ton of electricity, not only in the lights, but the uh, technology to cool and dehumidify the environment. So one way to kind of control our costs and guarantee our viability in the future is to move from indoor production to outdoor production in, in a greenhouse. Uh, another way we can attack that is by uh, really automating as much of the process as possible so that we can uh, actually minimize the amount of water and fertilizer we use on a crop. And if we invest in certain technologies, we can really minimize the amount of electricity that we use to, to grow that crop. And a perfect example is using LED lights instead of uh, the more traditional high intensity discharge lights. Still a third way that we can lessen our carbon footprint is actually to start breeding or growing cannabis varieties that require less fertilizer and light to grow. So typically the case is the more light you provide a plant, the more it produces, but that's not always the case. There's actually varieties that perform better under lower light conditions. So whether you're in an indoor environment or a greenhouse environment, if you can grow a crop and get the same yield using 30% less light, you not only save money, but you're, you're using less electricity in the process. So that's you know, two or three ways that a grower can minimize their carbon footprint. As a result, 
lower their production costs, and as a result, guarantee that they're going to be as competitive as possible in the future. So that's one angle to look at. Another angle to look at is what it is that we're going to be producing in the future. So for markets that are selling to recreational uh, cannabis consumers, you know, most people that go into a dispensary that buy dried flour are looking for two things. One is a high THC content, and the other is a really unique, rich mix of terpenes. So as long as we continue looking for and breeding these kind of varieties for the recreational market, we're going to do very well. So anything that has 30% THC or higher is going to sell really well and command a premium price point at retail. On the flip side, uh, there's a lot of interest in hemp production because the barrier to entry is low and it costs less to launch uh, a hemp farm, for example. Now, the problem is most people today in the U.S. are growing hemp for the production of flower biomass or CBD biomass. And the goal is really large volume, low cost production with the goal of uh, harvesting a lot of flour that we can then extract the active ingredient, which is CBD either into an oil or an isolate and sell it. So that's great, but the problem is that right now in the US we're actively importing and exporting products with CBD because it's not um, federally uh, prohibited. And so the problem is you've got not only production in the US, which is kind of um, the amount of product on the market is exasperated each harvest cycle, but you've got competition from places like Colombia where they can grow really cheap extract the CBD isolate and ship it to the US. You also have it coming from places like China and you also have a number of laboratories that are making it in-house. So it's really difficult to carve out a, a lucrative future growing a crop only for CBD when you have so much competition. It's really a commodity item. So when we look about how can when we look at how can we be competitive in the future, how can we future proof our business, I actually tell clients that are looking to get into hemp production to leave CBD alone. Don't start your business with the goal of becoming a CBD producer because there's already so much out of it. There's already so much of it out there and the price is is liable to continue dropping. So instead of growing hemp for CBD, I recommend clients consider growing it for every other use that industrial mm -hmm. hemp can be used for, right? Everything from the fiber to the grain to the oil. So that's still um, a new market. There's not a ton of companies that are using hemp fiber, for example, to make blue jeans or using hemp grain to feed uh, farm animals. But in the future, I think it's inevitable. So the first movers that can actually kind of uh, carve out a space for them in this industry, I think are going to do do very well. So there's kind of two different ways to look at how we can future-proof our business. One by controlling the, the cost and the inputs, and the other is looking at what it is that we are producing, what is our final product. 100%. And I, I love that that futuristic thinking about how if you're trying to get into the hemp space now based on the concept of, oh, hey, I'm going to grow hemp for strictly CBD purposes or CBD products, um, you kind of, you kind of missed the train and it's, it's a little bit too late. And that, that sort of sounds like that's what you're getting at. Is that, do you kind of see that being holding true still? Yeah. Yeah. It's just when you enter a, a commodity market, it all comes down to price and there's someone, someone is always going to be able to grow it cheaper mm -hmm. or produce it cheaper. We need to look at things that are going to, that we can't, you know, things you can't import or can't export or something that isn't easily available. So yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I think we should 
kind of leave CBD alone, let the people that are producing and growing it now continue to do it. And we look at new markets, new products. Interesting. Yeah. And Brian, so this, this question just kind of came to mind right now. Um, opening up a vertically integrated company is sometimes required, right? Depending on the state that you're operating in, if you'd like to, to jump in the cannabis game. Uh-huh. But if we push that to the side for just a moment and look at vertical integration from more of a business perspective, what are some of the pros and cons of being vertically integrated? Because I know a lot of folks love it. Um, I think investors look at it as, you know, um, as kind of like the shiny object, object. Oh, wow. You know, they control every step of the, of the uh, supply chain, but I have heard that there are pros and cons to it. So I'd be interested to get your take on this. Yeah. So what we find uh, initially when states legalize medicinal cannabis is at least in the last few years, they've required businesses to be vertically integrated. So that means they need to control every step of the production process of the supply chain from the cultivation to the manufacturing or extraction right to the retail level. So the, the assumption is that in a vertically integrated business, there's much more control of the process and the final product because everything happens in-house. Right. But the risk is that, well, there's a number of disadvantages. First, the company is forced to be expert in every phase of that process, which is tricky when it's a startup industry. And right. typically these folks are coming from other industries to get into cannabis. So you have to become expert immediately in cultivation, in extraction, and in retail. So that's, it's a, it's a jump, it's a stretch. But in addition to that, you have to raise a ton of money to build out the infrastructure required to participate in every step of the production chain, which requires a lot of money. Uh, probably the third disadvantage from a cultivation business standpoint is that it's extremely risky. So startups in any industry aren't pretty, it's never perfect. And so oftentimes with cultivation startups, companies will experience a crop failure or crop issues before they even really get rolling. And so in a vertically integrated market, if you're required, if you can only sell what you grow in the instance, you do have a crop failure, your entire business comes to a halt because you can't buy in product from other growers to supply your customers until your next crop comes online. So not only does the business lose money, but now you have consumers that don't have access to medicine that they legally have a right to consume and they have to wait until your next crop comes along. Hopefully that if there's, you know, hopefully there's not a problem, but <clears throat> aside from that, um, in the event that uh, states don't require vertical integration, there's actually a business opportunity for cultivation businesses to specialize, not just in cultivation, but actually one step of the cultivation process. So if you think about the cultivation process, you could look at it like in, in three different stages. One is, the propagation, which is the taking of clones or cuttings or starting starting seeds. The other is the vegetative growth of that plant where you basically grow it to a size that's appropriate for flowering while you build up a strong root system and a strong branching system that'll withhold the weight of the flowers that'll come later. And then the third phase is the flowering cycle. So I mentioned I come from traditional horticulture and actually in traditional floor culture, that's the standard. So you have large commercial operators that only specialize in rooting clones. Hmm. And so they, they root the clones and then they'll ship out a tray of rooted clones to a greenhouse grower. And so this grower really specializes in just the vegetative growth of this plant. They just kind of size it up 
to a um, to a, a form or a structure where it's appropriate to begin flowering, then they sell that to another greenhouse grower who receives it, and all they do is flower it out and sell it. And so it's a very efficient way to um, to manage cultivation because again they don't need to specialize in everything from um, taking care of stock plants or mother plants, rooting clones, vegetative growth, flowering, and post-harvest and drying. You can really specialize in each stage of the process. It's, it's much more efficient. And like I said, globally in floriculture, that's actually the standard for commercial greenhouse growers. Interesting. And you, you mentioned, um, that was a really insightful answer, by the way. I appreciate that. And you mentioned for vertically integrated companies, the, the necessity to kind of be an expert in every step of the way and every step of the process. I'd like to give you huge props for not cutting any corners and leaving no stone unturned in your book. You really packed this book with an abundance of information. And one of the things I loved about it, and I don't think I've ever said this before about any book, um, is the appendix. And <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. Can you share with listeners who haven't had a chance to get their copy yet, what tools and resources you provide in the appendix? Because when I, when I got to the back of the book, I thought, okay, this is great. You know, that's done. I, I feel like I just, you know, I just got started or I, or I just, you know, turned into another book. Um, but I, I think, I think the appendix is filled with some really, really important information. So I'd love to give you a chance just to kind of elaborate on, on what you've provided in there. Well, that's great. I appreciate you mentioning that because I, I put a lot of thought into that and I included really tools and templates that were useful to me over the years as a head grower. So I know they, that they would be to readers of the book as well. So it's got everything from uh, an SOP template. You know, SOPs are, are a, a critical part of the foundation of, of a quality management system when it comes to cultivating cannabis. So we need SOPs that really cover every part of the cultivation process. And so I included one uh, SOP specifically for rooting cuttings, but what was more important was the actual template. What does a SOP look like? How is it created? What does it include? Um, so that kind of gives uh, readers an example of how to set up their own SOPs. Uh, in addition to that, I've got a, um, a job description for a head grower. Since I mentioned before, that's potentially one of the most important positions in determining the success or failure of a cultivation business. So I've got a, a pretty extensive job description that helps, that can help readers really determine uh, what kind of a person they need to hire. Um, I also have a, a checklist for land selection. So whether you're growing indoors or outdoors or in a greenhouse, land selection is critical. So there's certain things we want to look at if we're retrofitting, if we're buying a warehouse to retrofit it for uh, indoor production, there's certain things we want to look at in terms of how close your neighbors are, if there's power available, water source, security, etc. Uh, if we're buying a greenhouse to retrofit, there's certain things we want to look at. And then if we're going to start a, a cannabis farm, there's even a number of certain factors we want to look at in terms of selecting the land. So there's a, a land selection checklist. Um, and besides that, there's a, a, an extensive list of different cannabis associations throughout the U.S. So the, those groups always are on the forefront of legalizing or trying to attempt to legalize cannabis in states where it's not let, yet legal. But it also provides a tremendous network of support for groups that are new to the cultivation business in states where, where they can rely on other people that are doing exactly what they're doing as well. That's awesome. And for, and for those who would like to to check out the book and get their hands on a copy, what's the best place for them to go? Uh, so right now, the, the paperback and the ebook version are available on Amazon. 
Uh, and within the next few weeks, I'll actually have a merchant site on my website where I'll be selling the book uh, personally. So uh, Amazon, everyone knows how to, how to find that. And my website is uh, douglascultivation.com. Awesome. And then Ryan, I was also going to ask if, if folks want to get in touch with you uh, personally about cultivation and everything that you kind of have your hands involved in, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out to you and connect with you about your expertise? Yep. So I think again, through my website at douglascultivation.com, there's a contact page and you can reach out to me there. I respond immediately. Awesome. All right. Well, Ryan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time this week to jump on the show and for sharing so much information and some of the golden nuggets of your journey in cannabis cultivation with the listeners on the show. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Awesome. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week's episode. Thank you, Ryan Douglas. And we will see you all next week on the next episode. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.